these words of life that you remind us again that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that Christ is sufficient for us. And as we look to him once again in the pages of Scripture, would you open our eyes to behold the wonderful truth from your word. You know where each one of us stands this morning. You know those of us who need encouragement, those of us who are in a place of discouragement. You know those of us who need hope, who are in a place of hopelessness. Those of us who need strength because we're in a place of loss. We know that your word is sufficient and can bring all that for us and to us. And we lean on you now, asking that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Typically, every year uh, during the fall season, beginning from late August and onward to November, my parents come back from Sacramento and bring me a large bag of walnuts. And it's unlike what I'm used to doing because usually I'm just used to going to Trader Joe's, walking down that aisle, grabbing the bag of walnuts that are already cracked and peeled and ready to go. Well, this time you get a bag of walnuts that are not, and so I grab a hammer or you just grab a walnut cracker. And uh, as you begin to crack, they're all different. Some of them come out perfectly. Others are discolored, um, and yet others are rotten, weirdly. Um, some, you can't really tell really what it looks like until you actually crack the walnut open. And from the outside, they all look the same, yet when you apply pressure, you begin to see what is really on the inside. You see the true contents of what is on the inside. As we look at our passage this morning, this is somewhat of what the Apostle Paul is going through. What is revealed to us is his internal attitude and the state that he is in when he, his back is against the wall, when he is in jail, a place of seeming hopelessness and despair, a place of loss. And what is revealed is this true condition of his heart and his motives. And as we already saw last week, he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing. See, friends, in tough times are the times when our character is tested, when our heart is revealed, and the true motives in our life rise to the top. And this is what I want to meditate with you on this morning from our passage and ask you this question. What are attitudes that we should have as believers that would propel us for gospel living and gospel growth? What are the attitudes that we should be having like the Apostle Paul who is in jail, his back is against the wall, yet under pressure what is, re is revealed is he is still thinking about how the gospel can go forth and build believers up and reach those who are lost. You see, we are in a line, long line of godly men and women who lived before us. Their devotion and their legacy has been left for us to follow. Their sufferings for Christ has progressed the gospel. Their attitudes have been revealed. And if we look a little bit before the times of the Reformation, we meet a man named John Huss who was burned at the stake. A hundred years before the Reformation, and as the fire was being lit that fateful day, July of 1415, John Huss gave an inspired prophecy. As the official executioner was about to light the pyre at the feet of the reformer, he said, Now we will cook the goose, because Huss in Bohemian means goose. 
Yes, replied Huss, but there will come an eagle in a hundred years that you will not reach. Speaking of Luther, who would come a hundred years later. You see, under pressure, John Huss was thinking about the furtherance of the gospel, the purposes of God on earth as his life was coming to an end. What Paul is revealing to us in this passage is how his present state directed his future decisions. In the last few sermons, we've been looking about and thinking together with, about the fellowship of the gospel, that we are united because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And this is exactly what the Philippian church and Paul had in common. The common denominator that brought them together was Jesus Christ. And last week, we saw how Paul's disappointments led to embrace God's appointments. And it was a reminder for us to embrace our disappointments as God's appointments and to use our platform for gospel growth. So Paul was moving from the fellowship of the gospel into the furtherance of the gospel. And our passage this morning continues that same theme of the gospel going forward. Specific attitudes that Paul had were the root to the fruit of gospel advancement. So the proposition this morning is the proper attitudes of a servant of Christ. And we'll begin, the first one of these is Paul's hope, beginning in verse 18b. Paul's hope. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Says with the idea of hope that we get here in this section, his eager expectation and a hope that he's not going to be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ is going to be glorified in his body. So as we are looking at each of these points, I want you to see, we're going to see where Paul's out, Paul's hope, and right underneath in the blue, you're going to see what I would call us to do as believers, which in this first point is delighting in deliverance. The big question here on the table is how in the world is Paul rejoicing in his present circumstance? Now let's bring us back to the context of what is going on. Paul is not in just some bad Motel 6 at the outskirts of town. He needs the gift from the Philippian church, the financial gift to survive in jail. Added to that, there's people who are preaching out of selfish ambition. There's opposition from the world to the church at Philippi that Paul is counseling them through. But Paul says... I will rejoice because Paul's reminding us what this whole epistle is about. It's about Christ and the believer's union to Christ that produces joy in the believer's life no matter what circumstance the believer is in. Happiness comes from happenstance, things that just happen by circumstance. Joy comes from our union with Christ wherever our union is, whether we find our union with Christ in jail in the office chair, at the boardroom, in the hospital, at the clinic, or with diapers at home. And wherever that is, our union with Christ is not because of our circumstances, but our joy is because of that union. And Paul gives us reason for why he rejoices. He says, I will rejoice, and he gives us a little word for explaining I know. There's something deep down that Paul knows. There's a firm faith that Paul has that he is drawing from. He says, this will turn out 
for my deliverance or for my salvation. And the question becomes, what is this salvation? Is his deliverance going to be death or is his deliverance going to be freedom? What does that salvation look like? We'll see later on, Paul says, whether he lives or dies, it is gain for him. It is his faith in God because God always turns out everything for good. Because this is how God works in his economy. Loss is gain. Chaos is clarity. Jail is a platform for gospel growth. We think of Joseph who said, you meant it for evil. God meant it, the evil, for good. God has been writing history because it is his story. And Paul in his last imprisonment is saying that he works together everything for good to those who love him. We may think, why? Why is chaos leading to clarity? Because God's power is perfected in our weakness. Because the light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison for the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. It's because the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is because God could take the greatest sin in the world the crucifixion of his son who was perfect without blemish and turn it out for good to all those who would believe in him. See, Paul is drawing from this knowledge of how God works. For I know, I have a firm foundation. I have faith in God because in my life, I do not live my life as a detective trying to figure out why I am in this circumstance. I live my life as a historian looking back to the history of what God has done. God's past faithfulness has been 10 out of 10, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance because this is how God works in his economy. And I ask you, friends, do you believe in that? Do you believe in God's economy? Do you believe in the ways that God works? Now, he says that this is going to happen for a number of reasons, three specifically, the first of which is the be- prayer of the believers. For I know that through your prayers, it is because of the prayer of the church. Here we see the genuine partnership, as we saw in verse 9, where Paul prays for the church at Philippi. Genuine partnership includes prayer. It is filled with prayer because when you love each other, you pray for each other, and you are on each other's heart. When difficult times arise, it is great to know that you are not standing alone, but there are a room full of other people. There's the body of Christ that, that is that has your back and is praying for you. And Paul is saying, it is through your prayers that this deliverance is going to happen. As one very famous and influential preacher would say, prayer causes things that would not happen to happen if we did not pray. This is why God calls us to pray. So that is the first reason why this is going to turn out for the deliverance. He knows that the church has his back. They're praying to an almighty God who can take Paul out of jail because he has already brought Peter out of jail. God has already delivered in many ways before. Second reason, because of the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, because of the help of the Holy Spirit. Why is it the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Because the emphasis in the book of Philippians is on Christ. He is the spirit of Christ. 
In Acts, you see what Paul is getting at is this idea of mission, and Paul is on a mission, and he's reminding us that he is on a mission of Christ with the help of the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit that was sent, Acts 1.8, when he will come upon them, they will be witnesses from Judea, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul is saying that the Spirit that has guided him up to this moment, the Holy Spirit is going to lead him through this time of his suffering and imprisonment. And it's going to lead and turn out for deliverance. And the third reason we see here is because of the hope in God's purposes. As is my eager expectation and hope. These are two parallel praises, eager expectation and hope. What you eagerly await is really what you hope for. Because Paul has hope in God's purposes, that God is going to do something through this. What is God going to do? Well, first let's see what is eager expectation. An eager expectation is eagerly waiting for something. Hope is looking forward to something with a confidence. Paul has confidence that something is going to happen through this. He doesn't just think it might happen, but he has this confidence because God has already worked in the past. The eager expectation is the inclination of his heart, the compass of his life that is always pointing north. I mean, what would you be thinking at this point in time? You're chained to a soldier for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're in a monkey prison. Your meals are not that great. Seems like people preaching around you are some out of goodwill, others because out of envy are preaching Christ. You're writing uh, letters to the church at Colossae and at, at Ephesus and at Philippi. The church at Colossae is, you know, adding to Christ, not seeing the sufficiency, supremacy of Christ. The church at, the church at Ephesus has their own issues that Paul is combating, being a very huge port city. And now you're in jail and you're writing to the Philippians who have some kind of conflict that is causing the gospel to be hindered, who are not living in humility. And uh, you might think, well, this is the picture in the movie where the camera is fading out from the jail cell and it's slowly going from bright to dark to dark and the screen turns black and it is over. But that is not Paul's eager expectation and hope because his hope is rooted in a almighty God. You think he's simply going to die in peace or end up retiring? But Paul is not doing those things. Paul is not eagerly waiting a raise at work, eagerly awaiting that his hardship will pass, eagerly awaiting for a hall pass. Paul is eagerly waiting and hoping for this one thing, which we read here in verse 20, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for the time when Christ is going to be glorified through the circumstance that Paul finds himself in. He's not going to be ashamed. He's not going to be disappointed in hope because we know in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ rose from the dead. We are not the people that are most to be pitied. Get this out of your help. Get this out of your head, Paul is saying. I'm not going to be ashamed, but on the other hand, I know this one thing. Christ is going to be honored. To be honored and exalted is to cause to be held in greater esteem 
through praise or deeds, to magnify, to speak highly of. Christ is going to be spoken highly of because of my chains. We already saw it last week where Christ is being preached and proclaimed. Christ is being advertised. He's going to be on billboards. He's going to be known because of this imprisonment. This jail situation is going to make Christ great. Now, there are a couple ways to magnify. When we think of Christ as going to be honored or magnified in my body, there's the idea of being magnified in something with a microscope and magnifying something with a telescope. Magnifying something with a microscope is to make something very small look really big as you look at it in a microscope. To magnify something through a telescope means you're making something that is very big, stars and other planets look much smaller. And what Christ is saying, I'm going to magnify Christ. Christ is glorious already. Christ is great. And Christ is going to be even greater seen by this world because of the circumstances that I am going through. This is going to turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, Paul gives us some parameters. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Number one, in my body is the location where this is going to happen. The attitude that Paul has, he's with the full courage, so it's the total person. The time, now and always. This is not just the only time Christ is going to be honored. He's going to be honored always. There's never a moment when Christ won't be honored. And the circumstance, he says here, whether by life or by death. So do you delight in deliverance? I think one of the first questions we need to ask is, how do you view God during the hard times of life? Paul views God as the God who began a good work is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God see, Paul sees God as the God who is working all things together for good to those who love him. Paul sees God as the one who could take a very horrible situation and turn it around to glorify himself. Tozer says that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. So how do you view God in your circumstances? And I would have to say this is the exact place where your view of God is truly tested. And not only your view of God, your faith in God is truly tested. I always tell people it's wonderful to believe in the sovereignty of God. It's great to proclaim God's providence in our life. But from our head to our heart is sometimes a larger gap than we think is there. And only the circumstances and the hardships of life really reveal what we truly believe. And here we see Paul's attitude, his mindset. What he believes is how he lives. He isn't in a hard situation and backpedaling. He is in a hard situation and he is standing firm. He has confidence in God's working. Is this the attitude you find yourself in in a tough times at home, 
in the tough times of parenting, in the tough times at work, in the tough times at church, proclaiming a great and sovereign God. But the question is, do we truly live like He is on His throne? And this is where we build our faith Sunday after Sunday, beholding the glory of Christ, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Second, is your hope that Christ would be magnified through the hard times of your life? Is it your hope that Christ would be magnified through the hard times of life? I want to bring this down to the reality of our Monday mornings. On Sunday, we come together, we sing, and as Peter said, it sounds great. It's really loud in this room when you sing. It is great to sing with you. We're proclaiming these magnificent truths about Christ, about the gospel, and about God. The question becomes, what happens on Monday morning? What happens on Tuesday afternoon? Is it your hope that when you get to the situation that is hard, like this morning as we were leaving and my son was tantruming for 30-some-odd minutes while I was trying to reread my sermon and get ready, am I thinking Christ is going to be glorified through this? Yes, Lord. Amen. Thank you very much. In the minutia and the hardships of our weekly life, are we thinking, how is God going to be glorified through this moment? How is my character going to be built up? How am I going to be formed more into the image of Jesus Christ so that next week and next month and next year I look more like Christ as a believer and because of that Christ is now getting glorified? So do we see this? Is this our hope that Christ would be magnified through our cancer, through our wayward children, through the hard times of life? Ultimately, it is because faith soars but fear sinks. If Paul was afraid, the camera would have just shut off, it's over. But faith soars. Faith in God, who he is and what he has done. And so in light of this reality, Paul has a struggle. Paul has a struggle and he's thinking about what he is going to do with his life. In verse 20, we close with these words that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul gets to verse 21 and says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And based on that reality, I have a struggle now and a decision to make. And so secondly, we see Paul's struggle. We see Paul's struggle. What is the essence of the struggle? He gives, he gives us a pro and con list of whether to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, or to stay, which is more necessary on the account of the believers at Philippi. Paul is thinking through how his decision is going to affect the church. And you might ask yourselves the question, well, Paul, you didn't really have to give us a pro and con list. Paul, you didn't really have to pen on the pages of Holy Scriptures how you make decisions in your life. But it seems like God would desire for us to know this. That God would want us to go alongside with Paul to see how he makes decisions in his life. Because we find ourselves very often decision-making about things. And Paul is going to show us through his decision what is more valuable in life and what is less valuable. Paul is going to show what are the priorities that are in his life that should be the priorities of our life. The first option that Paul has is dying. Is dying which would be gained in verse 21. For me to live is Christ. This is why he has this eager expectation and hope 
that Christ is going to be honored and glorified. He gives us the explanation in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dying is gain for Paul because Christ is more valuable than everything else in this world. If you were to put Christ on one side of the scale and put all the possessions, achievements, accomplishments, and everything else into this world, Christ is greater. Death is gained because Paul gets to leave this place that is hard. The place where five times he received 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with rods and shipwrecks, and he was even stoned once. He knew hardship, and so death would be gained. Death is gained because heaven is also better. Who wouldn't want to be in heaven described as in Revelation 7? A place where there's no longer hunger or thirst, which Paul is experiencing in jail, where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is Paul's dilemma. It's not an easy decision. Dying sounds like a better option. No more pain or suffering from imprisonment. And let's be real, no more would he have to deal with the problems that he faces from every church. Not only does he say, I went through all these things, but the daily pressures of the church are upon me. And so he is looking to Christ and saying, Lord, it would be so much better just to be with you. And isn't this how we at times feel? The pressures, the hardships of life, This is, I believe, why God allows us to go through these things in our life, so that we yearn heaven more. But the question is, do we yearn heaven more because we want to get away from the hardships of life, or do we yearn for heaven more because Christ is there? Colossians 3.1, Paul reminds us that he seeks the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so this is option one. Death is gain. Option two is living. For to me, to live is Christ. My life is bound up in Christ. I am united to Christ. Christ called me and commissioned me to proclaim his gospel. This is my life. For me, to live is Christ. This is where I find my joy. This is where I find my satisfaction. This is where I find my purpose is in Christ. Everything that I do is for Christ's glory. And I find great joy in that. For me to live is Christ. He also says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It is fruitful labor. To stay and to remain would be for the needs of others. Paul states that remaining is not just about fruitfulness, but more so it is necessary for the Philippians' sake. And so what do we see about Paul's heart and his attitude? He clarifies this once again, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does Paul mean once again when he says that death is gain? This word gain can be translated as the word profit. It is more profitable. To be with Christ is more profitable. Death is more profitable than staying here on earth. Because his life is caught up in Christ. Because Paul is on a mission. I want to read to you a quote from F.B. Meyer who says this, Christ is the essence of our life, the model of our life, the aim of our life, 
the solace of our life, the reward of our life. Think of the prepositions that express relationships. We live in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and from Christ. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of life. He is truly the Alpha and Omega, the A and Z, and every letter in between. And so if you lost everything today, but had only Christ, would you be okay? Is he front and center? Or as remember John Piper many years ago saying, are you just collecting seashells on the seashore? Are you just coasting in life? Is Christ in the backseat as you drive around living out your purposes for your life? If Christ came, would you be happy? Or would you say, well, I haven't finished my bucket list, bucket list Lord. Could you uh, come a little bit later? Can I have a little bit more time? Would you be indifferent and say, well, it's nice, Lord, that you're here. Would you be sad? Would you be happy? I think the desire of every believer who is bound up in Christ and with Christ and whose life is living in Christ would joyfully say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 really becomes a valuable test for our life. We could fill in the blanks. For me to live is something, to die is blank. For me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. For me to live is culture, and to die is to forget it all. For me to live is career, and to die is to miss the bullseye. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the desire that Paul has for Christ. And so as we were thinking about delighting in deliverance, right now we are thinking about desiring Christ, and the question becomes, do we desire Christ in this way? Do we treasure Christ and see Him in all His glory and His beauty? And, and friends, the reason why I'm saying this is because as believers, we're constantly bombarded with advertisements, ideas, and thoughts that would draw us away from Christ, that would draw us to career, that would draw us to fame, that would draw us to pleasure, that would draw us to the things of this world that we are surrounded by. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. But sometimes we find ourselves wavering and nearing the path of the world. And so this message and this verse to us this morning is a reality. It would be wonderful for all of us to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain is the reality of my life every single day, in theory. But the question is, do we really believe it? This is a great verse that we hear, that it's preached on, that we sing these, these realities. And every time I read this verse, it causes me to assess my life. What are my desires? What are my ambitions and what are my goals? And are they in line with Scripture, with what is in line with what Paul is doing, which is the furtherance of the gospel? Is this what wakes me up in the morning? And so Paul's desire is to see Christ exalted whether by his life or by his death. And so Paul has this struggle that he is going through. And Paul is showing us that the way that he is coming to his decision 
is first and foremost by seeing if this is going to glorify Christ. And he is getting to that place because he is showing us first that Christ needs to be of extreme worth in your eyes for you to be able to make the right decision in your life. And so we get to Paul's decision. It's the third point here. In verses 24 to 26. I want to back up and begin in verse 23 as well. Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. This is what Paul is convinced of. This is what Paul is firm in. He is firm in this fact that him staying is going to be more beneficial than if he leaves. And so therefore I know that I will remain and continue for you all. So what are the two things? Two reasons why Paul remains here. In light of reality, in light of the situation that he is in, in light of his reasoning, he decides now to stay. First reason for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul would love to leave and the Corinthian church with its elders and the Ephesian church with its elders and the church at Philippi with its elders would just do well. They would have no more problems, no more divisions, no more sexual sin, no more one-upness in the church, that the body would work together with every member performing their function. But he says that's not the reality. He says to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. We'll remain and continue. Because these are in the present tense, because he knows that this is not a one-time thing. To remain and continue means work and labor. This is the idea of discipleship that Paul is getting across here. Paul is saying that the Christian life is a slow process and change. The change happens day by day through Scripture as we come and we meet God. In the pages of Scripture, it comes from Thursday morning men's and men breakfast, once a month ladies' book studies. It comes through the daily living with our spouse where God reveals our character and teaches us to change. It comes through formal discipleship when you study various doctrines that cause you to live more for His glory and His honor. Paul is saying, I will remain and I will continue because I know that this work is not easy And as he wrote to the Galatians, he says that, oh, how long until Christ is formed in you? How much longer do I really need to wait? And friends, this is the reality of ministry. If you today are ministering to people in the church, if you're discipling, if you're leading a certain ministry, we must understand that it is an ongoing, lengthy process until Christ comes back for people to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, Paul says he's going to remain and continue. 
for your progress and joy in the faith. There's two words here that show us the borders of this passage. The idea of progress initially is found in verse 12 where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has really happened to me has really served to advance or to progress the gospel. And now Paul closes this paragraph by saying that I'm going to stay here for your progress, for your furtherance, and for your joy in the faith. Paul desires them to not be stagnant. He says he's going to come alongside of them and help them. And how is he going to help them? Our next chapter, in chapter 2, he teaches them about what servitude really looks like. He points their gaze to the humility of Jesus Christ. Later on, he shows that everything, whatever gain he had, he counts as loss for the sake of Christ and showing the surpassing worth of Christ. He teaches them to look heavenward. This is the progress that we're talking about. And joy in the faith. Of all the things, why is Paul talking about joy in the faith? He could have said your progress and the doctrinal growth. He could have said your progress and your theology of family. He says for your progress and joy in the faith. The book of Philippians is about our union with Christ and the glory of Christ. Ephesians is about Christ as the head of the church. Colossians is about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. If we truly understand Christianity, we understand that how rich we really are in Christ is leading us and leads us to a place where we live in full and complete joy. What do we have as believers that we would want? What are we missing in the Christian life that we would desire? What has not already been given to us that Christ has given to us? For your progress and joy in the faith, our Christian life is not a life that we are sluggishly going through, waiting, oh Lord, when are you going to come for us? I can't wait till you come. Life is so dull. Life is so hard. Christ would desire for us to walk in joy and happiness because of our union with Him, to serve the Lord with gladness, enter into the joy of your master. Paul is going to work for their progress and their joy in the faith. And convinced of this, he's going to stay. And second reason why he stays is so that Christ would get the glory. In verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Your boasting in Christ might Abound. It's similar to verse 9 where he says your prayers will abound more and more. Here he's saying your boasting in Christ may abound. Be in excess and overflow by my coming to you again. Because Paul is reminding them that when he comes and he is going to help in their progress and the joy in their faith, the result of that is going to be they're going to be in a place where they're going to glory in Christ Jesus because of the maturity that they're experiencing through the ministry of Paul. They're going to glorify Christ because they understand his purposes more. They're going to be more united as a church, working towards the furtherance of the gospel. As we look at this section, I have some questions that I want to ask you. 
And as we have already seen, this passage is teaching us to think through the decisions that we make with the people who are around us. So I want to ask you, do you think through how your decisions will affect the church? Do you think through how your personal decision is going to affect the greater body of Christ? How it will be beneficial to the church? How do we decide to get involved in a ministry or not? Do we consider only our own interests or the interests of others, which we see in chapter 2? If it was really according to only Paul's interest, Paul would have said, it's better for me to be with Christ. Death is gain. End of story, end of the scene. But Paul says, it's better for me to stay on your account. It is better to serve. Is our current situation helping us to understand what God is drawing us to And are we thinking about the church or are the hardships of our life just causing us to draw away from what God is calling us to do as believers? Are decisions based on our own comfort or are we thinking about ministry to others? These are the proper attitudes of those who are servants of Christ. And this is uh, the life of Paul as he is in jail. He understands he's a servant he doesn't ask the question, what would be the best decision for me and what would be the easiest thing for me? Paul is asking the question, how can I further advance the gospel? How can Christ be more glorified and how can the church be built up? And these are questions that I think secondarily we are asking here. And so ultimately we see Christ being glorified through the decision and the life of Paul. And so the question becomes, number one, do we delight in deliverance? Do we delight in deliverance when hardships come our way? Are are we having that firm foundation like Paul is saying here, I know, I really know because of what God has already done in the past that this will turn out for my deliverance. Are you living life as a historian or are you living life as a detective? Is it your goal and your desire that Christ would be glorified through the hardships of your life? So do you delight in deliverance? Secondly, Do you desire Christ? Really, this is the fuel that is going to get you to delighting in deliverance, is it not? The fuel that's going to get you to a place of developing others and delighting in God's working in the hardships of your life is because of your desire for Christ, is because you see Christ worthy, is because you see Christ exalted, is because you see Christ sufficient. It is because, verse 21, is the reality of your life, for it's in me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And lastly, do you develop others? Is this the outlook of uh, your life? Is this what you are doing using your gifts that God has given you? As we've already even studied some months back as we were looking about partnership in the church, we spoke about we are members one of another. And we have these one another's that we are called to fulfill as a body. So do you develop others? The song we're going to close with this morning is a song, Jesus, I, My Cross, Have Taken. And I want to read a couple of the verses here because they very well fit with the theme of our message this morning. The song goes like this, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. 
Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. This is what Paul is preaching about here. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your words of life. Thank you for these attitudes that you remind us that we have already in Christ Jesus that you have transformed our life and you're continuing, to change, uh, you're continuing to change us. And you're challenging us, Lord, challenging us to delight in deliverance, to desire Christ more in our life and to develop those who are around us. May you help us to do that. We lean on you because we know this is a work that only you can accomplish in and through us. And we want to praise you for our union that we already have with Christ, that because of what he has done, this is something that is possible and attainable in our life. I pray and hope that our eyes were greater open to behold the glories of your Son. And Father, may you impress these truths upon our heart as we move from this Sunday to the rest of our week. In Jesus' name we pray.